Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 28 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul and Barnabas Strengthen the Church, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? This is the finish of Paul and Barnabas's mission trip, and it's uh, remarkable, the fruitfulness. We also see some of the aspects of their commitments uh, to the ministry as we combine it with where we ended up last time, with Paul being basically left for dead after being stoned. Mm. The incredible commitment he had to preach the word is inspirational to us all. But then we also see the return to the sending church uh, in Antioch and the reporting of what God had done and the kind of closing of the loop there. So we do get an insight into uh, the, the work of a healthy local church having sent godly, fruitful individuals out to do a work that they continue to care about that work and to continue to be interested in it and to pray about it and to welcome those individuals back. So I think it says something about churches today holding on to relationships with missionaries and then giving them a a reception, a warm reception when they come back to say the things that God had done so that they feel they're part of the family of God. So we'll talk about those things today. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Andy, broadly speaking, how successful was Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey? Well, just if you look at verse 21, which you just read, uh, that gives you a little indication. Just in that city of Derby, uh, where Paul and Barnabas had gone to, just in that city, it says they preached the gospel, the good news, in the city of Derby and won a large number of disciples. And so given the fact that the Holy Spirit is testifying to the fact that they were genuine converts to Christ, we're going to see all of those brothers and sisters in heaven. So that's successful. And then um, generations followed after that of, of Christian families raising their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So how can we even measure the impact of this mission trip? So they were very successful. Why did Paul and Barnabas return to the cities they had been in earlier, and what kind of courage must it have taken to return, given the way they'd left Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch? Yeah, a lot of times they were they were persecuted out of the place and had to leave. They had to flee because of the persecution that was going on, so they took a lot of courage. The reason they did it is because once somebody has made an initial commitment 
of faith in Christ, their journey has just begun. We think about the parable of the seed and the, and the soils, and there's always the danger of the stony ground here who receives the word with joy, but when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Uh, or the thorny ground here that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke it, making it unfruitful. And so we see this intense concern that Paul has in 1 Thessalonians 2 about the church in Thessalonica, and he sends Timothy there to find out about their faith. He says there, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has now just now come with a good report from you saying that you always long for us and remember us well and that you're walking in the gospel. Mm. So I think the same spirit uh, motivated them to go back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, to these places to be certain that these folks were, were continuing in the faith. And the message they give, which we're going to talk about in a moment, we must through, go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, that they understand that. This is going to be a hard life, a hard journey they have to, they have to endure. And so to get them ready for that and get them ready to suffer. So that's why they went back, to go back, as it says openly, to strengthen the disciples, verse 22. Let's talk a little more about that because verse 22 is rich with significance in how they ministered to these local churches. What did Paul and Barnabas do for the disciples in these cities to strengthen them? And what does it mean that Paul and Barnabas encouraged the disciples in these places to continue in the faith? Right. The strengthening uh, of the disciples must be the ministry of the word and the Holy Spirit. So by ministering the word, they're strengthening their faith. They're strengthening their commitment to Christ, their love for Christ. That's what the strengthening is. So I feel that that's something that, Wes, you and I seek to do as we lead worship. Mm. Wes, you do a great job leading our corporate worship, singing the music. Um, your desire, I'm sure, is to strengthen the disciples. And then when I get up to preach, my desire is to strengthen the faith of the disciples. And so that that ministry, that strengthening um, is vital. We need to understand that as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, we grow weak weaker through that. Our, our ardor dims. And so we need to feed. We need to feast. We need to be renewed. Like Psalm 23 says, he restores my soul. We need our souls restored. So that restorative work is much in my mind as I get up to preach week after week. Uh, here is a group of people who I love. They're the, the flock that the Lord's entrusted to us as elders. And they've been through it this week. They've gone through mm -hmm. suffering. They've gone through temptation. They've gone through all kinds of things, ups and downs. They need to be strengthened in the faith. And nothing does that better than the word of God, the ministry of the word. So I think they're going there to strengthen the hearts of the disciples and to renew their commitment to Christ through the ministry of the word. Andy, why do Paul and Barnabas specifically mention the great tribulations? As we've been talking about the many things that we walk through in this life, the disciples would have to face these to enter the kingdom of God. Why do they mention these sufferings ahead of time in a manner similar to Christ's mentioning them ahead of time in John 16? So what Jesus does in John 16, he tells them that people are going to arrest them. They're going to persecute them. They're going to put them in jail. In fact, even some people will kill, will be killed, uh, some of his disciples. And and those doing it will think they're serving God thereby. And Jesus says the reason why he tells them ahead of time. He said, I've told you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. Hmm. 
You know, we always add the extra he in there, but basically that I am God, that you won't lose your faith in me. And so that's the idea. The idea is the stony ground here, when the sun comes up and beats down on the stony ground plant, it withers and dies because it has no root system. And Jesus interpreted it saying, um, those the, the stony ground is the one that receives the word with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So in other words, when it gets difficult to be a Christian, when the world beats on you because you're a Christian, um, it's very easy to fall away. And so the, the remedy is to be forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. And he's saying, I'm telling you, it's going to be hard. This is Paul and Barnabas's version of this. Mm. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Expect a difficult time. Then when it happens, you won't be surprised. Uh, other texts say that. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're going through as though something strange were mm. happening to you. We frequently are like, what's this? What's the very thing you were warned about? I think we American Christians are used to such a comfortable relationship with the surrounding unbelieving world that we forget we're in enemy territory. And when things start ramping up over the next generation or more, a generation or two, and it gets be, to become very difficult to be a Christian, I think our children and grandchildren, they're going to understand the persecution needed. So at that point, verses like Acts 14, 23 are going to be vital for them to comprehend. This also reminds me of a, of a beautiful part of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the, uh, the book written by John Bunyan at the end of the 17th century is an allegory of the Christian life. And so it's about the journey going from the city of destruction, unconverted, uh, situation in which you're under the wrath of God to the celestial city that is heaven. So it's the Christian life and it's an allegory. And in the allegory, there is some place called the interpreter's house and the interpreter shows the pilgrim, Christian, lots of vignettes or acted out things that help the Christian to understand aspects of the Christian life. This verse, Acts 14, 23, might well have been in Bunyan's mind when he wrote this part of Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to it. I saw also that the interpreter took him, Christian, again by the hand and led Christian into a very pleasant place where a stately palace had been built. It was a very beautiful building indeed. Now the pilgrim was greatly delighted at what he saw and particularly with the sight of several people clothed in gold walking around the top of the palace. Then said Christian, may we go inside? Then the interpreter led him closer to the main door. And there he noticed a large number of men who obviously desired to gain entrance, yet seemed to lack courage. Back a little from the door, there was also a man sitting at a table with a book and an inkhorn in front of him. His role was that of recording the names of those who were determined to enter the palace. But Christian also saw that in the very doorway, there stood many armored men who were intent on employing violence and mischief to stop any man from gaining entrance. At this, the eager pilgrim pondered what all this meant. Then, while most of the men outside cowered at the thought of attempting to make a forceful entrance, Christian noticed one man, very resolute in appearance, stride up to the man at the desk and ask of him, Sir, set down my name. 
Immediately following this, the same man drew his sword, put a helmet on his head, and rushed toward the palace door with the men standing in the way. So the valiant entrant found himself opposed with deadly force, yet he was not discouraged, and consequently applied himself to fierce cutting and hacking of his opponents. He both received and gave many wounds to his enemies. Nevertheless, this courageous man cut his way through so that he eventually gained entrance into the palace. Then those inside, and especially three at the top, cried out with a joyous chorus of welcome. Come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. So he went in and was clothed with garments similar to those being worn by the citizens of the palace. Then Christian smiled and said, I certainly know the meaning of this. Mm. So it's a picture of we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We can't expect it to be easy. Now, our enemies are not human. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There are going to be human enemies, but we're not cutting and hacking them. Rather, we put on the spiritual armor. We take up the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith to protect ourselves against spiritual enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are assaulting our souls every moment. It is going to be very, very hard to enter the kingdom of God. We should expect it. Andy, that simple phrase you mentioned, forewarned is forearmed, is so helpful and I think captures well what Paul and Barnabas were seeking to do, to let them know there would be trials, but that through these they would enter uh, the kingdom of God. In their ongoing effort to strengthen the churches, Paul and Barnabas helped them to establish a plurality of elders in each church. How are the elders selected and set in their position in this case, and what does this teach us about church government? Yeah, it's a it's powerful statement here. They um, appointed elders, plural, for them in each church. So this is a very clear statement of the doctrine of plurality of elders in every local church. Uh, however, Paul and Barnabas appointed them or, or, or ordained them or set them up. Now, it's very unclear exactly how those individuals were arrived at. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, the original so-called deacons, we don't know that they're deacons, but the seven that took care of the distribution of the food were chosen by the church. Uh, the apostles said, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So we don't know if that happened this time or if just Paul and Barnabas selected uh, them and appointed them or established them. For us as Baptists, we believe in a kind of a congregational polity, a democratic approach. And so in our church, elders are voted in. But frequently the question is, how are the first elders established in their position? And that becomes a logistical challenge. In this case, Paul and Barnabas identified the men who would meet the criteria that Paul would later to write about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He already knew what he had in mind and saw those qualities in these men and appointed them in the church. Andy, in what ways are godly elders a gift of God to a church? Right. First of all, elders should not think of themselves that way in an arrogant sort of way. But in general, the church should see them that way, that if they are godly and if they are faithful in ministering the word, they are a big part of the provision God has made for the salvation, the final salvation of their souls. By the faithful ministry of the word, they're being fed. 
Their souls are being strengthened and protected. They're being prayed for. They're being admonished when need need be. They are being being chased or hunted down like the good uh, shepherd leaves the 99 on the hills and goes and looks for the one that wanders off. So you don't just let people wander away. You go try to find them and bring them back. In this way and in many others, godly elders are gifts from God to the church. But the elders should not see themselves so, but rather be humble and understand this is a high calling from God. As Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What does it mean that Paul and Barnabas at the end of verse 23 committed the churches to the Lord in whom they had believed? Well, it's uh, it's interesting because it says the same thing in verse 26 um, about the uh, church at Antioch. They were committed to God for the work that they had just completed. So we'll get to there, get there in a minute. But the idea is very much like what Jesus said right before he died, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have the sense that I'm in God's hands and, and God alone can protect us from the attacks we talked about, the world of flesh and the devil. And the hardships, as it says in Acts 14.22, through many hardships, we have to enter the kingdom of God. To, to be protected from that, really only God ultimately can protect that church. So we are now going to leave. Um, you may never see us again. So we're committing you to the omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God, and he will take care of you. So don't be afraid. God is here. We're leaving but God is still here and he will care for you. So there's that sense of the whole work has been entrusted into the hands of God. So in the following verses, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch. They spend time in various cities along the way, but their ultimate end is to go back to Antioch from which they were commissioned. Why did they return to Antioch? I mean, why not stay in Asia Minor with these new churches and shepherd them? Well, I think what ends up happening is uh, in verse 27, they uh, reported everything that God had done. And I know we'll talk about that, but I think they wanted to do that. They wanted to go back to their sending church, to the original church from which they come, Acts 13. And they had been among those that were skilled and gifted leaders and teachers, but they had been gifted by that local church out to the work of mission. And now they're circling back and saying, you prayed for us, you sent us off. They might have sent them off with money, with resources. Um, and now we want to come back and report to you. We, we feel a sense of obligation to you, a sense of stewardship, so that you know that the people and money that you entrusted to the mission were well spent. Listen to the stories. And so in verse 27, they give a sense of those stories. But I think they wanted to finish the loop and thereby strengthen that church at Antioch with accounts of all that God was doing around the world. It does strengthen our faith when we hear testimonies from the distant mission field of what God has done through mm -hmm. the preaching of the word. Makes us want to be more faithful in our own city. So for that and many other reasons, plus they just had friendships there, I'm sure. People they missed, they'd been gone for a long time. And to come back and get reconnected, I think that's a beautiful thing. Thing. So it goes back to the healthy local church in Antioch being generous to the universal church and to the universal work of God, not being stingy, not holding on to Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're two best, really. They, I, would I would have a hard time imagining the church of Antioch had better leaders mm -hmm. than Paul and Barnabas. Um, but they sent them off generously and, and to go back and say, the, the people and the money were well spent. Look at all that God has done. We'll get to the details of their report in verse 27 in just a moment. 
But as they looked back on the work that they had accomplished, what thoughts must have been going through their minds? What moments stuck out, achievements, pains, things that they had experienced? Well, you know, they just go from place to place in Acts 13 and 14. Um, and they had so many incredible uh, experiences like Cyprus when uh, God struck that sorcerer, Elamus the sorcerer, with blindness. And then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, came to faith in Christ and maybe some many other people in Cyprus. And then Pisidian Antioch, that long sermon they preached in Acts 13, and, and many of the Jews were converted and brought in, but others spoke abusively against them, and there was division in the city. And then turning instead to the Gentiles and seeing a great work going on there. And then traveling to Iconium and, and Lystra and Derby and all of those cities, the different things that happened there. You remember how in... Uh, in Lystra, um, they healed the crippled man, and and they the people said the gods have come down uh, to us in human form, and mm. and they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes and were anguished that they would not do that, and they continued to preach against the paganism that was the root of that. But then they were persecuted, and Paul was stoned and left for dead. And then he goes to Derby, and they win a lot of people, a lot of converts there. God was so gracious, mm. and they must have known, as Paul said. We don't deserve to have any of these good things done uh, for us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I don't deserve to be called an apostle, you know. but God used me and he used Barnabas and he did great things. So it is only by the grace of God that all these good things happen. Andy, that's powerful, that demeanor that they take when they report. How do they report the outcome to the church? Because many of these things I'm sure were flooding their minds as they returned to this place from which they were sent out. Uh, how do they report the outcome to the church at Antioch? And what does verse 27 teach us about the way Paul and Barnabas spoke of their achievements? Well, we have such an, a short attention span uh, in our in our society and, and our church services are, are short. Um, I remember going to, um, on my first mission trip to Kenya, and uh, we went uh, to a place where we were going to have church service. It was a Sunday. And uh, I'll never forget, um, you know, just the, the length of the, of the day. It was a whole day that those Kenyan Christians were together. Hmm. And um, many sermons, a meal, um, much fellowshipping, coming back together again for more hymn singing and another sermon. They were there all day. And so you get the feeling that Paul and Barnabas, same thing. They weren't in any rush. Said, let's let's go place to place. Let's say what happened in, in Cyprus and, and in Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and, and Derby and all these places. We just want to tell you all the stories. And they were hanging on every word. And so they reported all that God had done. I love that statement, through mm -hmm. them, how what God had done through them. And then it says how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So a great explosion of work among the Gentiles. Lots and lots of Gentile believers. It's an exciting thing. What does verse 28 teach us about Paul and Barnabas's relationship to the church at Antioch? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage that we've been looking at? Well, verse 28 says they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So again, that goes back to one of the reasons for, for them going back to Antioch is they had friendships there. But they also, there were new converts in the time they were gone. I'm sure that healthy church in Antioch had won a lot of people in that region to faith in Christ. And so we could well imagine uh, Paul and Barnabas pitching in with the teaching ministry there. They would welcome back in. And 
and uh, to have Paul teach that doctrine that he eventually sketched out in the book of Romans and sent in that he couldn't come to Rome. He said, let me give you a, a brief summary of, my, of what I would teach if I would come. But, but here Paul and Barnabas are there physically and able to give the full teaching of everything that they'd want to say and, and just the fellowshipping, so the friendship. So I just get the beauty of local church life. I would say this section that we've studied today, um, we keep bumping into what is involved in healthy church life. And so the, the admonitions, the warnings, we have to go through many hardships, um, but local church is here to help you with that. We're not alone. Um, the fact that they appointed plural elders in, in every every city so that there would be, in every church, uh, so that there would be accountability and there would be mutual strengthening and the and the diversity of gifts among the elders and leadership. And, and then the wanting to come back to uh, Antioch and, and report everything. This is just a, a good sketch here of what helps healthy local church uh, looks like. It's strong fellowship. It's warnings against the dangers of the world and protection against the dangers of the world. It is a pouring out of solid, sound doctrine. It's healthy church government. It's shepherding. It's all of that. And it's a commitment to the world mission, a commitment to the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what a healthy church looks like. Well, this has been episode 28 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 29, entitled The Jerusalem Council on Circumcision, Part 1, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.